what happens is if you say you eat a meal at nine o'clock at night and then you go straight to bed, that meal is not being processed. A, because we're not able to, we're less able to process this meal at this time because we're less insulin sensitive, all those things that I was mentioning, but then you fall asleep and then people will freak out because you'll see a huge glucose spike occur in the middle of the night when they're sleeping and they wake up in the morning, they scan their CGM and they see that. And I think they're totally freaked out, but it is so common. And it, it, it's something that you can make tweaks to. So I think the two major um, things that help with this are you can either push your eating time to earlier. So you can eat earlier, say, if you ate at nine and you had that poor response, try eating earlier at six o'clock or even pushing it back to five o'clock. And then I usually suggest waiting at least three hours before going to bed so that you can try to process that meal. And I think lower carb meals at night are awesome. So you might find that you eat a sweet potato at night and you have a huge glucose response, but you can eat that same sweet potato in the middle of the day and you respond great to it. So there's such a an important role in the timing of when you're eating too. And I, we see it play out in the data all the time. So it's- I think that's, fa- isn't that fascinating? Because here's the deal. Like so many people don't even know about macronutrients. They've grown up their whole life counting calories or counting points. Hi, I'm Dr. Morgan Nolte, physical therapist turned weight loss coach. I used to struggle with emotional eating, consistency, and confidence. Then I made my health a priority and learned how to lose the mental and physical weight once and for all. I changed my mindset and lifestyle to lose weight with small, sustainable changes. Each week on the Reshape Your Health podcast, you'll learn simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies to help you do the same. If you're ready to create a body and life you love, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey there, and welcome back to the Reshape Your Health podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Give yourself a little pat on the back for being here, for showing up for yourself, and for learning something new. Your brain needs that praise and positivity to make healthy habits stick. Now, we just finished up the spring enrollment period for my private weight loss membership program, Weight Loss for Health. And I just wanted to thank everyone who went through the free weight loss breakthrough challenge or attended my free training to unlock your metabolism. If you're a new member of Weight Loss for Health, welcome, welcome, welcome. I cannot wait for you to dive into the trainings and learn so much. And if you didn't join this time, that's okay. Keep listening to the podcast each week to get new inspiration. And if you want to join, enrollment will be open again in the fall. Now, before we get started, I wanted to also thank you so much for subscribing to this channel on YouTube or podcast if you're listening. Those subscriptions help this show get seen by more people, and then I get to help more people. To encourage listeners who haven't done so yet, I've created a fun, limited time giveaway to help motivate you to take action and show your support for the show. I'm calling it the new review contest and it's just for podcast listeners. Don't worry my YouTube subscribers, a special contest is coming for you later this summer. To enter to win a special surprise, you'll have to do three simple things. 
Number one, I want you to subscribe to this podcast. Number two, leave a rating and review for this podcast. And number three, take a screenshot or picture of your rating and review and email me at mnulty at weightlossforhealth.com. Again, that's mnulty at weightlossforhealth.com. Or you can message me the photo on Instagram at Dr. Morgan Nulty. I will take all the submissions and draw a winner July 1st. I promise that the surprise is going to be well worth your time. So thank you so much and enjoy this episode. What if I told you, you can still have carbs and lose weight, that it's possible to reduce the impact carbohydrates have on your blood sugar. When you eat them, what other foods you eat and what you do after you eat carbs all impact your blood glucose response. It's possible to hack this response so carbohydrates have a lower overall glucose and insulin spike. In the long run, this is going to help you lose weight, keep it off, and prevent disease. An idea that I love from the book Atomic Habits by James Clear is that the reward for a bad habit tends to be in the present, and the cost of a bad habit is in the future. For example, let's say your bad habit is eating a donut after church. That chocolate-covered donut with sprinkles tastes great in the moment, but your insulin and blood glucose will spike and ultimately cause weight gain and contribute to disease. But your brain doesn't care. It just wants that chocolate-glazed donut and that rush of dopamine, your feel-good hormone, that it gets when it has sugar. But what about a good habit? Good habits don't usually feel good in the present. Their reward is in the future. Skipping the donut isn't very fun now, especially if people around you are eating them. But if you skip one donut a week for 52 weeks, you're saving almost five and a half cups of sugar per year. Now, maybe you're farther along in your health journey and you're past the donut at church phase, but maybe your habit is a banana. And for the record, I eat bananas just in moderation and not by themselves. Eating one banana a day adds up to three and three quarters of a cup of sugar a year. Just replacing that banana with lower sugar blackberries, raspberries, or strawberries is a simple thing that you can do to improve your blood glucose. But you don't think about that when you're eating the donut or you're eating the banana. And it took me a good five minutes to calculate that math. What if there was an easier way to instantly see how food impacts your blood glucose? Seeing the instant impact flips the habit script I was talking about. It brings the consequences for the bad habit to the present. You immediately see the spike in blood glucose and the reward for the good habit comes to the present. No blood glucose spike. This kind of instant easy data can be powerful and motivating to change your behavior. We often dismiss small choices because they don't seem to matter very much in the moment. But my friends, small choices add up to big results. The only thing you have to give up when losing weight is giving up. If you've ever tried a really low carb diet or keto and didn't feel like you had enough food flexibility or variety to sustain it, you're going to love this episode. Today you're going to hear from Molly Downey. She's a registered dietitian who specializes in glucose control, metabolism, and weight loss. She currently works as a dietitian at NutriSense, a health technology company which leverages continuous glucose monitors, also known as CGMs, as a way to optimize diet, health, and overall well-being. 
Now, you may have believed that it doesn't matter when you eat or what you eat, as long as you stay under your calories or points in a day. I'm sorry to say that that is not based on science. Weight loss is about hormones, specifically it's about insulin, and you're going to learn today how the type, amount, and timing of foods we eat impacts blood glucose. My members of Weight Loss for Health know I'm all about science, because when you understand the science, you're so much more motivated to change your behavior. There's no hiding from your hormones. I know this may be a paradigm shift for you, from points, calories, red, yellow, green foods, hello, food is not a stoplight, to macronutrients and hormones. But I promise, once you learn how your body works, you can let go of all those old diet rules mushing around in your head. Weight loss is gonna become simpler and more straightforward. The quality of your questions determines the quality of your results. And when how will this affect my insulin, instead of how many points or calories does this have, becomes your new litmus test for healthy choices, you're going to get better results. When it comes to long-term weight loss, I truly believe, again, knowledge is power. And this episode is loaded with so much great information. I know you're gonna walk away from it with tangible things you can start doing today to improve your blood glucose. And this is not the common stuff that I usually talk about. In this episode, we cover which macronutrient you should eat first during your meal to lower the overall glucose impact of that meal how to lower your morning blood sugars, also known as the Dawn Effect, why eating the same meal at a different time of day can impact your blood glucose differently, why eating several small meals a day is bad for blood glucose and weight loss, how and when to break your longer fasts, why you can't maintain your weight with the same diet at age 60 as you did at age 40, and so much more. I know you're going to love Molly's tips. So let's dive in. Molly, thank you so much for joining the reshape your health podcast. We are so lucky to have you. And I know this is going to be a really great interview. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Morgan. I'm excited to talk with you. We have so many cool things that we can kind of go over in regards to blood sugar diet and different lifestyle modifications that can help you optimize your health. So hopefully we can get into more detail with everything. Yeah, I know we did quite a bit of prep for this interview because there's a lot of things to cover. I want you to start just by giving our listeners an overview of who you are, um, why you chose your profession and how you help people through the company that you work for, which is called NutriSense. Yeah, of course. So I am a registered dietitian and I work for NutriSense, as you mentioned, and we are just a health technology company. And what we do is we leverage continuous glucose monitors. So I'm going to refer to it as a CGM, but essentially this provides real-time data and insight into your body. And we're using glucose as a metric to identify the different variables, like the foods that you're eating and exercise and sleep and stress, all of these different things have a, or play a role in your overall health and your longevity and you know, they're just ways, what we're doing is we're just putting a preventative lens on how we're identifying this metric. So I think with a lot of people, they'll, they'll think of blood sugar and they'll think of diabetes where, you know, at NutriSense, we, we deal with a lot of our customers. They do have diabetes, but a lot of them are pretty healthy and they are just looking to optimize their health. And I think that glucose is just such a great metric 
for that. So, but I, I personally got interested in all this myself. I knew that I wanted to work in preventative health from earlier on. I think just, just being in school and, you know, you're taught that these, these foods have a, a healing effect on the body and you, you can see that you can either delay the onset of a disease or you can delay the progression of a disease. So I just thought that using food as medicine was so, so impactful and so cool. But it was kind of disappointing when you go out into the field because you, you're not really using it in that sense, like food as medicine. If you are, like most dietitians will work in an in inpatient setting. So when you're in the hospital and at this point, you're dealing with a lot of patients who are already in a pretty, you know, poor state mm -hmm. metabolically. They're 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 in the hospital, so there's something that happened. They're they're focusing on these major complications with either diabetes or cardiovascular disease. And what the dietitian is doing is they're just going in to the room for five ten minutes, reviewing this worksheet or some basic generic nutrition information with this person who's not attentive at that moment in time, right? They're sick. There's so many other things. There's stress. They're in the hospital. They, yeah, exactly. not a learning environment. <laughs> so it's just not a place where they, you know, are receptive. And with, if, you know, if they're already at this point and they have been living their life with, you know, they have poor diet or poor exercise routine, or they're stressed out all the time. If they don't, know how to manage these it takes that's behavior change and that takes time so i think that i just felt that what i was doing in that hospital setting was just ineffective and i wanted to be the person that was helping you know someone you know make it so they they're not progressing into these different disease states right so we know that um if we're eating right and exercising and managing our stress and we can we can live much happier in lives and we can be more energized so that's the whole purpose is using food as medicine in, in that aspect i also so i was personally dealing with my my own health issues and i was you know i was experiencing um brain fog and i had fatigue so i was just kind of confused and left um i didn't really know what to do because i was frustrated you know we learn all about the body in our undergrad and in our internship, but then how come I, you know, how come I couldn't figure out what was going on with yeah. myself? Yeah. So I think it was a huge catalyst for, you know, me going into diving into more research, reading more books, listening to podcasts. And then you, you realize that there's so much more out there. There's so many other different perspectives that different doctors have, different dietitians have that that are not directly aligned with that like basic procedure that you're learned and you're you're taught in school. So I think it was great and it was super eye-opening to be able to, you know, have these different perspectives because it, it it just stimulated different thought processes for me. So I kind of had a a flashback to one of the days in my internship and I was sitting in class and my professor had brought in a glucose meter. And she, I was one of the participants or the volunteers to get my blood sugar pricked. And I was in a fasted state at that point. So what that means is I had not eaten anything since the day before. So this was in the morning. I hadn't had anything to eat for at least eight hours. And she pricked my finger and I was at 108. And 
yeah, it was high. And for anyone who doesn't know the general reference ranges, we're in your, for a fasted level, we're looking for levels in the uh, 70 to 90 range. So the fact that I was in 108, I was, that, that was concerning. So I, my, my professor was very concerned. She was like, Molly, you should probably go follow up with this. But I, I didn't at the time, but it always just sat in the back of my mind. And I finally, you know, two years later, I bought a glucose meter off Amazon and I started testing my blood sugar. And what do you know, my fasting levels are high. I have poor postprandial responses. And this was just mind blowing to me because I was, I grew up at playing sports. I was an athlete. I was always eating healthy. You know, I didn't expect to have this poor blood sugar, but it, it was kind of encouraging for me to see because you know, I was, I was not feeling great. So it was just one single metric that can kind of just provided encouragement for me that I was, you know, at least onto something, I knew something was wrong. So again, it's always, it's not always that glucose is that identifiable metric that's going to solve all of your problems, but it can provide great insight to, you know, I needed to make a lot of diet manipulations in you know what I was eating every day and I did that and I feel a lot better. So they're just these tiny little little things that you can do. And I think, you know, I end up finding NutriSense and it's exactly, you know, it's the perfect, you know, I have my own personal experience with it. And I just think it's it's such a great tool and such a great way to to help people really understand how their body is responding to very different variables. I think so too. And I've never tried it personally. I, I do know people who have, I have a keto mojo device and that's the one I usually recommend for my members. And for those who aren't familiar, um, the keto mojo device is a finger prick, uh, just like Molly talked about, and that will check your blood glucose and your blood ketones. And it will help, you know, help you determine if your, you know, what your fasting levels are. We can talk about the postprandial and what that means. Um, if you're in ketosis, and that's very different from NutriSense's um, continuous glucose monitor. And I'd like you to explain to explain exactly what it is, exactly how it's used, and what the whole program is. Because it's not like you just stick it on your arm and you're left <laughs> left to your own devices. So, can you give us a little more um, explanation about how your company really helps people understand their blood sugar on a deeper level than just um, a, a single finger prick. For sure. I have the keto mojo too, and I love it. Yeah. So, yeah. But so if you're looking at it's the continuous glucose monitor is what we use. So essentially what you do, if you sign up for NutriSense or you get a CGM from somewhere else, you can, what you do is you apply it on the back of your arm and it stays there. It's just a sensor and it stays there for 14 days. And it, continuously monitors your glucose 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you get that full comprehensive view of what's going on in your glucose. So basically, you know, you're, we're identifying more trends than you can actually, than you would if you were just doing a finger prick. So what you were saying, you might do one single prick and you might get your fasted levels, but there's so many more nuances to your fasting glucose. And you can identify that pretty much in about five days, just a couple days wearing the continuous glucose monitor. You'll see that your fasting levels fluctuate on a daily basis. So, 
it, 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 and you can see then your overnight values too. And I think this is definitely one of the, the major trends that we see, and we can talk more about this as well, but you just get a far more comprehensive view. And then also with your post meal responses, your postprandial responses. So if you eat something, you're going to get, you're going to see way better, you know, what is actually going on. So you'll see how high your, your glucose spiked. So maybe it went to, you know, 160 and then it didn't come back down for three hours. So you're, we're identifying more so different trends. So with um, a postprandial or a post-meal response, generally speaking, we don't want it to go beyond a threshold of 140 milligrams per deciliter. And then we, we want our levels to then return back to baseline in a matter of two to three hours. So there's different other implications that come about if, you know, they're your levels are spike, spiking higher than that, or if they're more prolonged responses. So we really get to see that data in the CGM. So it's really great. But you, so with our sensor in particular, it, it hooks up to our app. And in our app, you see this, a graph view of your glucose for that period of time. And you're also linked up with the dietitian. So a lot of people going into it, they might not have any idea what this data means or right. it's it's hard to interpret. So that's why the dietitian is so essential in helping them understand their data. We essentially are just making minor little tweaks here and there to, you know, different trends that we're seeing. And, and they, they really do, um, they are very effective in, you know, actually optimizing someone's blood sugar. Can you explain a little bit more about the post-meal glucose response? What does it mean if somebody has an elevated like uh, glucose response after a meal, say 160, 180, and what does it mean if it takes longer than two to three hours to come back to baseline? Really good question. Um, so I say it as like an impaired, if you're, if you're spiking higher than say to 160, then this is sort of like an impaired glucose tolerance. And you are just not, you're having more difficulty processing that meal or that carbohydrate in the foods. And then you have that really high spike. And generally speaking, if you do have a higher spike, you want it to return back to baseline very quickly because then you know that your cells are more insulin sensitive or carb tolerant and you are able to process that meal more effectively. If you have a super high spike to 160 and say six hours later, your glucose levels are still sitting high. It might not be exactly at 160, but if you're still at you know, 130 or 140 from there, six hours later, this is just more, it's a signifying factor that maybe there's some insulin resistance at play and we can dive more into what actually insulin resistance is, but you can totally see it play out in the glucose data. You can see whether or not someone's more sensitive to carbohydrate or whether they're having more difficulty processing carbohydrates. So it's a really effective tool. And of course it's not diagnostic, right? So it's not something that's gonna be like, oh, you are for sure insulin resistant, but it does provide us with really great insight. And then you can then go further, you know, go to your doctor or work with that. But honestly, lifestyle modifications, diet, exercise, stress, all of these things are the best thing for um, insulin resistance. So I think it's just a really great tool. 
Yeah. And, and I, so not this, we're recording this in April and this isn't going to air for a few, few weeks, but next week we, um, live is Dr. Bickman who wrote why we get sick. Um, so his interviews next week and we go all into insulin resistance. So hopefully by the time this airs, people have a good understanding of that. So we might circle around to that, but I think that I'd really like to steer the interview towards some, you know, some specific things with your experience and what you're seeing in the data. Um, we prepare an outline before every interview. And I thought you wrote down some really cool things that I wanted to talk about. So let's start with, I want you to talk about how different macronutrients affect blood glucose. And, you know, just for people who aren't familiar with my program, it is all about how to reduce insulin resistance and inflammation. Cause this is it. Like if you reduce those two things, you can lose weight, you can prevent and reverse disease. And we don't have Dr. Bickman. And I talked about this. There's no such thing as a continuous insulin monitor yet, yet. So this is kind of the next best thing to give you that instant data and those trends that Molly was talking about. So let's talk about dietary trends and how those different types of macronutrients. And for people who aren't familiar with that, there's three carbs, proteins, fats, how they affect blood sugar. Really great question. And I think Dr. Bickman will probably do a way better job of discussing insulin resistance. So I think it's a good idea to focus then on just the macronutrients and and what we're actually seeing in the data. So for the, the, what you're, glucose is going to be most responsive to is carbohydrates. So um, if you have a, a, a high carbohydrate meal, say you just eat a piece of bread by itself, you might see a glucose response, right? And it just depends on the person. Someone, I have seen some people who they can eat a piece of bread by itself and they might not have a huge response. Whereas if I ate it, I would have a huge glucose response. So what this means is it doesn't it do, it's, doesn't mean that you can never have this food again. It's more so let's work on some manipulations around this. So one really great tool that I find super effective and something that I utilize every day is before eating your carbohydrate, it's really important to eat your protein first off of your plate. So if just to put into context, say you ate that piece of bread by itself, you might have a super high glucose spike, but say you ate chicken before, and then you eat the bread, your response might be much more regulated. And that protein helps regulate that glucose response. So I think that combination of the carb and the protein is super imperative. And I think you learned that early on, you know, working with us because it's, it's something that's just so effective. So I, I utilize that tool every single day um, with everything that I eat, always eating the protein first. I think even, you know, the snack ideas. So if you're eating a banana, maybe eating a hard boiled egg before you might regulate the glucose response, or if you're eating a full meal and say you're eating a piece of fish, you have broccoli on your plate and some rice. If you eat the rice off of your plate first, you might see a higher glucose response than if you eat the same meal the next day at the same time and you eat the protein and, you know, veggies first then you eat the rice, your response will probably be much more regulated. So again, it's that that protein combination. I think recognizing too, especially for, for newbies around here, broccoli is a carbohydrate primarily, 
but it's a fibrous carb. And so I think if you're very, very new, there's starches, there's sugars, there's fiber and it's the, the fiber really, do you see that impact blood glucose at all besides slow it down? It usually just slows it down. Okay. Versus the starches and the sugars will cause a higher spike. Okay. Yes. Just so that everyone kind of is clear on that. So I want you to talk about what then do you recommend? Do you always recommend pairing a carbohydrate after the protein, maybe after the fat as well, pairing carbohydrate with some sort of protein and fat at every meal, every snack? Yes, pretty much. Especially if, if you are someone who's more responsive to carbs by itself, like you will recognize that within a week, whether if you're, if you're responding to a carbohydrate poorly. So again, it's, it doesn't mean that you can't have it. I think there's different techniques. So that protein pairing is just one technique that I use. I've also seen a lot of a lot of benefit from drinking apple cider vinegar beforehand. So yeah. I use that a lot. And I, I always thought it was just kind of like a myth, but it really, it totally plays out in the data. And I'll just put two tablespoons and I'll mix it with water. Maybe I'll do some lemon juice, but drinking that even 15 minutes before you have a higher carbohydrate or even just a larger meal in general, it can help regulate that glucose spike. Another real cool thing is when we work out, our bodies are far more insulin sensitive in that post-workout period. So you might, again, let's refer back to that, that bread example. So you might eat that, you might have a spike, but say you work out beforehand and you have a pretty intense solid workout and in that after period, then you eat that bread, your response, you might be able to tolerate that glucose and that bread much more effectively because you are just more insulin sensitive at that point. So I think that's another cool technique. And another thing, if you have a higher glucose spike, going for a walk is incredible. So I think so many people undermine walking, but it is so awesome for glucose control even a 15 minute walk after a glucose spike, you can see that your levels are, it, it, it helps bring your levels back down. Or if you have higher glucose levels waking up in the morning, you can go out for a walk and it, it totally stabilizes your, your blood sugar. So I think walking is key. But again, there are different strategies that I like to work around because a lot of people, like it might be discouraging if they see that they're more responsive to a carbohydrate and it, and it stinks. And I think that, you know, finding different ways to work around that is super important. And other people, they might be fine going low carb. So it's, it, I really just work with the individual and what they want. So I think that the walking is a really great tip. And, and for people who don't understand how that works, I like to say, you know, your blood glucose can either be pulled in by muscle demand because your muscles are contracting when they're walk, when you're walking, they need energy and they pull that energy in or they can be let in kind of pushed in by insulin. And so that's how it helps with lowering the blood sugar. Now you mentioned something I thought was really interesting and I hadn't ever thought about this before. So morning walking, right? Like we know that from a circadian rhythm, morning sunlight is really beneficial to help with sleep and stress and cortisol. But I'd never thought about how a walk in the morning the muscle demand can help reduce the blood sugar. Can you walk us through number one? Why do people have an elevated glucose response in the morning when they might think it should be lower because they haven't been eating? 
because I think it's very important to understand how cortisol and other hormones impact our blood sugar. Cause it's not just food that impacts your blood sugar. Walk us through those morning blood sugars. Yeah. So I think there's a couple things at play here, but if someone hasn't heard of the dawn phenomenon, this is something that happens in the morning. So I typically will see it between four to 8 AM and it's just a hormone surge, but it'll, it, it, causes an increase in your blood sugar during that time. So it's pretty normal. Most people are sleeping during that time, but they'll, with the continuous glucose monitor, they can see, oh my gosh, my glucose spikes during my sleep. And it could, for the most part, just be from the hormone surge. And once you wake up in the morning, your glucose, for the most part, in most people will begin to level out, but there are certain situations where your glucose might still be sitting higher. The one of the most major trends that I see is the food that you're eating the night before and how it impacts your overnight values and then your fasting values. So I think this goes into what you were talking about with circadian rhythm and our bodies are just far less insulin sensitive and tolerant to food and carbohydrate later on in the evening and it's when it gets with dark out in particular. And what happens is if you say you eat a meal at nine o'clock at night and then you go straight to bed, that meal is not being processed a, because we're not able to, we're less able to process this meal at this time because we're less insulin sensitive, all those things that I was mentioning, but then you fall asleep and then people will freak out because you'll see a huge glucose spike occur in the middle of the night when they're sleeping. And they wake up in the morning, they scan their CGM and they see that. And I think they're totally freaked out, but it is so common. And it, it, it's something that you can make tweaks to. So I think the two major um, things that help with this are you can either push your eating time to earlier. So you can eat earlier, say, if you ate at nine and you had that poor response, try eating earlier at six o'clock or even pushing it back to five o'clock. And then I usually suggest waiting at least three hours before going to bed so that you can try to process that meal. And I think lower carb meals at night are awesome. So you might find that you eat a sweet potato at night and you have a huge glucose response, but you can eat that same sweet potato in the middle of the day and you respond great to it. So there's such a, an important role in the timing of when you're eating too. And I, we see it play out in the data all the time. So it's, I think that's fat. Isn't that fascinating? Because here's the deal. Like so many people don't even know about macronutrients. They've grown up their whole life counting calories or counting points. And that's why I say those are so ineffective. So one of my new clients was, I'm not here to, you know, just on any program, they were on Weight Watchers for 15 years and they were having a breakfast that had four grams of protein and they were eating a lot of zero, like zero point foods that are high in carbohydrates, right? Fruits and vegetables are primarily carbohydrates. And so I think the problem when you're focusing on low calorie, low point foods are, is that those foods, you know, are primarily carbohydrate foods. And when we're focusing so much on calories and calorie density, you're missing protein, you're missing healthy fats. You're missing these really important building blocks for your muscles, um, for your cells and for your hormones. 
And so I think that's why understanding macronutrients is so much more beneficial than counting points or calories. And I use the carb manager application. That's the one that I typically recommend for people. And they're just shocked when they start tracking their food and they're like, wow, I'm a walking carbohydrate. And I'm like, aren't we all when we start learning on this journey? So I'm really glad that we're kind of getting this word out there, but I wanted to dig a little deeper into meal timing, because this is something also when you're focusing on a points or calories, um, paradigm that it doesn't matter. You can have food whenever you want. As long as you don't go over your calories, you can have as many points as you want throughout the whole day. That's not how our bodies work. So can you explain to us what you're seeing in the data when people are using intermittent fasting and different types of fasting schedules, what you see and the best way to break a fast to prevent that glucose spike, because we are more sensitive to insulin and all those things at the end of a fast walk us through the, the meal timing component of blue of blood glucose. Yeah, for sure. So I think there are different ways to intermittent fast. And I think for the most part, and what I see in data, if you're just doing a basic like 16, eight method, whether you're male or female, I would say that you're, it, it works pretty well. You know, some people struggle and if, if it's not for you, it's not for you, but I always suggest at least trying, especially with weight loss, because it can be super effective. I think where a lot of people mess up, they think that, oh, this is my eating window. I'm going to eat multiple times, you know, throughout the day. But what this is doing is you are then stimulate, stimulating your insulin response every time that you're eating this meal. And if this is consistently happening, say every two hours during your feeding period, your body's in a constant state of fat storing mode because insulin is an anabolic fat storing hormone. So it kind of contradicts that whole, you know, if we're working with intermittent fasting for weight loss, then you are eating consistently in that, in that time period, you're, you're not allowing your body the rest that it needs. You need that metabolic rest in between. So say I usually recommend if I'm seeing those consistent snacks and meals that are occurring in that, in that feeding period, then I will have them, you know, maybe let's just stick to two or three meals a day and let's just make sure that they are well balanced and you have, you know, a solid protein. If you, if you want to incorporate carbohydrate, you can, or some non-starchy veggies or some healthy fats like avocado. So I think it's better to have that balanced meal and then it keeps you full longer. You're not having these cravings constantly throughout the day. So I think people are pretty much mind boggled by that. But I would say that um, with intermittent fasting, like glucose data doesn't, like you won't see, like you, you can still see higher levels, like just from an intermittent fast. Cause it's kind of just like, maybe someone will stop eating at night and then they'll reintroduce or they'll have something to eat in the morning, but it's definitely more with the extended fasts. So this is if someone's going 24 hours or up to three days. And some people do do this and it, it helps a lot with insulin resistant people. So, but we're, we're a, a bit more technical on, on who we, we work with. Sure. Yeah. But essentially when I see an extended fast, like I'll see glucose levels lower pretty significantly. So, and it's with these extended fasts or even, you know, an intermittent fast as well. Well, how you break that fast, like what you were, you know, what you're asking, mm -hmm. asking about is so, so important. So 
I will see someone do, you know, a 24 hour fast and then they break their fast with say a sandwich or something that's and their blood sugar spikes like crazy because you're going 24 hours of being in a preservation mode, right? So your body's trying to preserve the energy that you have. And then when you go to reintroduce foods, it's just going to be hyperactive and you're going to have a far more exaggerated response. So that's why I always suggest staying away from carbs when you are breaking a fast. And I will always suggest my, my kind of go-to is break it with an egg, you know, some scrambled eggs and a half of an avocado or something, wait an hour, and then you can have a more balanced meal. It doesn't mean you can go to McDonald's and, you know, eat McDonald's. That's, that's not going to help, but it, it really just depends. And I would say for the most part, if people break it with the low carb meal and then reintroduce a meal about an hour later, their, their response is okay. Of course, there are individuals, like even if they eat a low carb, you know, a little bit of carbohydrate later on, they still might be more reactive. So I, I also think that playing into the whole idea of what I was discussing before with the fact that we are less tolerant of meals later on in the day, if you are doing a longer fast, like you should break it earlier in the day. So I will have someone be like, oh, I'm going to do a, you know, 24 hour fast and I'm going to break it at 7 p.m. Probably not the best time to break it at because you are less tolerant of that meal. So not only the fact that, you know, what I was describing above, you're in that preservation mode, you're going to be more reactive in the first place. So adding on that additional you know, aspect of the fact that you're eating them later on at night. These are all variables that make you have a more uh, pronounced reaction to that meal. I think that's a key takeaway for me. If I can learn like one new thing from each podcast that I listen to, I think that's great. From an autophagy standpoint, I really do try to do one longer fast a week. So 23, 24 hours, but I have been breaking that meal with dinner, a healthy dinner, a healthy one, but a big one. And so I think that um, my shift from this podcast is going to be breaking it, you know, lunch or maybe like an afternoon meal with a smaller dinner. And I was, I'm glad that you clarified too how long after a fast to have to introduce the carbohydrates. Um, because I was probably not waiting an hour after I broke my fast to eat the carbs because earlier we touched on that even in, in a meal, right? Like having the salmon or the chicken, then the broccoli, then the rice. And you're saying after a longer fast, you're going to wait, a, you're going to want to wait a little bit longer than just the 15 minutes it takes to yeah. eat the other part of the meal. I would say so just from what I've seen, of course, you know, someone might be able to tolerate a carbohydrate after a long fast. Some people might just be that way, but for the most part, I say wait at least an hour and then reintroduce those foods and you will probably be able to tolerate it a lot better. So I think okay. it's super helpful. And Let's the, yeah, talk- oh, go ahead. what you were saying about the, the actual timing, I think if you're doing a 24 hour fast, I think it's great to start at, you know, maybe 3 PM, have your, your last meal and then wait until 3 PM the next day. It's, it's pretty tolerable. Okay. Yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. So I think that's, that's my general suggestion for those 24 hour fasts. I'm all about different strategies. I like to tell my members, like I am full of infinite strategies for you to lose weight, you know? So I like adding tools to my toolbox there. We need to talk about what makes somebody more or less carb tolerant. And can you define what carb tolerant is? Cause we could sometimes throw around lingo that someone new to the podcast might not understand. Yeah. So I think if you're able 
carbohydrates. That means that you can have a meal that's has carbohydrate in it, and maybe you're only spiking to you know 110, and then your body comes back down really quickly. So if you have more of an impaired glucose tolerance, then your blood sugar might spike way higher from that exact same meal, and it might take longer to come back down to baseline. So essentially, if there, I'm not so sure we know exact, exactly know the, the mechanism to why you might have that impaired glucose tolerance, but there's usually some hormonal factor or underlying issue at play. Um, a lot of you know, women, especially if they have PCOS, they are, I'll see all the time that, you know, they have an impaired glucose tolerance or they're more prone to insulin resistance. So I think it's just that interplay of hormones for them that might make it so they cannot tolerate them as well. But I would also say that it's kind of like that first initial metabolic dysregulation that you might see, right? So you so from, from my perspective, I was noticing that I have poor glucose tolerance and that if I left that, you know, untreated and just let that play out and I was, you know, eating three high carb meals a day, I was probably having three high spikes a day. Yeah. Then eventually over time, I'm just overproducing insulin. You can become, have a decrease in insulin sensitivity and I think it just progresses into a worse state. And, you know, it could be that I would develop, you know, insulin resistance down the road. So again, I think managing those spikes is like step one. Well, do you think age plays a part of it? You know, the older you are, the less glucose tolerant you are? hundred percent. I okay. say, I would say that a lot of our users are older and we do have younger users. And for the most part, if the younger user comes in, they'll be able to tolerate carbs pretty well, unless there's some other underlying issue, maybe they're pre-diabetic or obviously if they're diabetic or if they have PCOS, but for the most part, I would say younger people have better carb tolerance. So it, it definitely comes with time. And if you're, if you're older, you might be far more responsive to a carbohydrate food or just food in general. So Okay. And then I think muscle mass too, right? Because you know, the more muscle you have, the more insulin receptors you have, the more the glucose can, the more space there is to deposit your blood glucose. And I think that that's another really key indicator that I talk about in my program regarding exercise. And I didn't, I, I kind of wanted to ask you about this. We didn't plan on it, but do you know if your members do like strength training versus aerobic training and how that can impact blood glucose in the immediate short term, which is what you're seeing, because we know in the long term, minute for minute resistance training is better to, you know, reverse prevent insulin resistance. Um, but how about in the moment, how do, how does different types of exercises impact blood glucose tolerance and levels? Yeah. So I would say that I encourage strength training for just about everyone. So it's, it's definitely effective in improving your insulin sensitivity and your ability to actually process foods. But I would say just, I don't know if there's any direct correlation behind this, but if you do a, if you do like a strength workout, it depends on the intensity, but I would say if you're, if you're doing more of a cardio workout or high intensity workout where you're really like sweating, I say that you're, you're more tolerant of carbs 
after that than like a more low key strength training workout. But it doesn't mean that the strength training workout is not being beneficial. I think in terms of that little hack of where you're, you're more tolerant of blood sugar after your, your workout. I, that's just my personal experience from what I have seen, but I don't know if anyone else would have a, a different interpretation of that. But yeah, I think we have to look at the long-term benefits. I think there's a lot of part in my French, but crap cardio, you know, yeah. that I see going on at the gym, women on the elliptical, women on the bike, women on the treadmill. And we're not saying that walking is, is bad by any means, but if you're really trying to control your weight, control your blood sugar, you got to look at the delayed effects of strength training and how that impacts your metabolism. And again, the room to deposit the blood glucose. Um, so I always try to plug strength training whenever I can, because I think a lot of women are just intimidated by it. They don't know how to do it. They don't want to get sore. And so it's just, we don't have to make it too complicated, but I wanted to talk to you about sitting because I have a desk job. I am certainly not the best example of this. Um, I try, but in the outline, we, you know, we wanted to talk about someone who has a sedentary job versus like my husband, who's a farmer and he's really active throughout the day. He hardly ever does any formal strength training or exercise. And he is in five, one, maybe a hundred, no, excuse me, six, one, maybe 155 pounds ripped, you know, yeah. and he doesn't even have to try and it's just yeah. not fair. So how does that sedentary job, like what I have versus the active job, like what he has impact blood sugar? Good question. So it kind of plays into the whole idea of what I was saying and what you were describing with walking, right? You're, if you're constantly moving and, you know, you're releasing energy, then if you're eating, then you're also able to, you know, work that off if you're walking around as opposed to if you eat something at your desk and then you just sit there for the rest of the day, you're not moving. It's just sitting there with you. We know how effective walking can be in that post-meal response and resolving your glucose spike and helping you to digest your meal. So that's why you might see, I think there was something I saw, someone posted something that they were sitting at their desk all day and then they ate this meal and they had a large response versus they stood their entire work day at their desk and they ate something and their response was more controlled. So I think it just, it, it's so hard, especially with COVID. So many people are just sitting at their desk all day. And I'm also, I fall into it as well. So I just try so hard to, I'll go for a walk in the morning. Every couple hours, I just try to go for a walk, even if it's 10 minutes just to get outside especially now it's getting nice out and, um, you know, make sure that I'm moving my body. Cause it's so easy to just get stuck staring at your computer all day. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel like to, to be effective with exercise, they have to, you know, carve out time in their calendar and it has to be this fancy program. And we really want to emphasize it doesn't, you know, the strength training is great. I think it's more effective at the gym because you can get higher loads, but yeah. just little walks throughout the day is a great place to start and a great place to, it's a great healthy habit to incorporate. Molly, any last tips for blood sugar regulation before we wrap up um, and sum up this interview? Yeah, I think just, I'm the biggest advocate for the fact that every, everyone should try a continuous glucose monitor at some point. Um, even if you do do NutriSense, you can do a two week program. So 
you can just sign up for the two weeks if you know you might find that your blood sugar is okay and, and that's i think that would be encouraging to know that you're kind of on a good track but maybe you discover that there are some things that you could work on and then maybe you can work on you know wearing a continuous glucose monitor for uh, a longer period of time so i think just everything is individualized and it really just depends on the person so i think hopefully anyone listening to this they can take some of the the tips that i've suggested into consideration like going for a walk after you eat or in the morning or you have your dinner even going for a walk afterwards it's super helpful so all these little hacks and tips are are very helpful in optimizing your your blood sugar levels yeah and just to sum up a couple of my other favorite ones if you're doing a longer fast you're suggesting maybe try going like 24 hour like i do 3 p.m to 3 p.m break it with something really low carb then maybe an hour later have your main meal um don't break a fast with carb uh pretty much ever and eat your carb. Like if it's a rice or quinoa or sweet potato after your protein, after the healthy fat, um, any other really good, good tips we talked about, you talked about the walking, especially in the morning to handle that. Um, the dawn phenomenon, I thought was a really good tip. Yeah. Anything and I else think you can think of too, with like the sweet potato and quinoa, you can try having it earlier on in the day. So, oh yeah. Yeah eat it, you know, say you are wearing a CGM, you eat it, you see a very high response. Doesn't mean you can't have it. Try it again the next day earlier on and you might be able to tolerate it a lot better. So that's I think an excellent tip. Yeah. Timing's key. Yep. Especially for those carbs. Well, Molly, thank you so much. Can you tell us how we can get in touch with you in NutriSense? Yeah. So you can visit our website. It is just www.nutrisense.io. So you can see all the different programs that we offer there and just kind of explore our website. And then we also have an Instagram account. It's Nutrisense IO. And then we're also on Facebook as well. So you can always get into contact and we're there. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing all of your experience, especially these carb hacks so that yeah. we don't feel like we have to completely get rid of carbs. We can make a couple tweaks and really impact um, our blood sugar and our insulin and our weight loss and our health. Thank you yeah. again. Of course. It's so nice talking to you. You too, Molly. Bye. Yeah. What did you think of today's episode? What's something new that you learned? I always like to encourage you to take action from these episodes. Change won't happen from osmosis. You've got to do the work. But remember, my friends, slow and steady wins the race. So what is just one way you could optimize your carb intake this week? Maybe eating your protein first and carb last. Going for a short walk after one of your meals. Maybe first thing in the morning reducing added and refined sugars, breaking your longer fast earlier in the day, or maybe breaking your longer fast with only protein and fat than waiting an hour to eat some carbs. Wherever you're at in your health journey, there are some takeaways from this episode for you, but just pick one because consistency is key. Remember about the new review contest for this podcast. To enter to win, you'll need to do just three simple things. It'll take you about five minutes. Number one, subscribe to this podcast. Number two, leave a rating and a review for this podcast. Number three, take a screenshot or picture of your rating and review and email me at mnolte at weightlossforhealth.com. Again, that's M-N-O-L-T-E at weightlossforhealth.com. Or you can message me. Um, I'm on Instagram at Dr. Morgan Nolte. And I'm gonna take all those submissions and draw a winner July 1st. It's gonna be well worth your time. 
And if you want to connect more on social media, you can find me on Instagram. Again, that's at Dr. Morgan Nolte. I always love hearing your takeaways from these shows. So take a screenshot of this episode and tag me so I know what you're finding most helpful. All right, I will talk with you again, same time, same place next week. Bye for now.